We're back. We're back. It's a distraction. I'm Drew. That's Roth. How you doing, David Roth? I'm feeling great, Drew McGarry. Mag- yeah, it's McGarry. That's how it's pronounced. Everybody, everybody knows that. I sure do. I had I had a football teammate call me Mags once, but he was the only person who called. It never caught on. Everyone else just called me. I don't, they didn't call me anything. They didn't give a fuck about me. <laughs> oh, that's not. Come on, man. I'm sure they just didn't. They, it's hard to come up with a good nickname for a guy who's like really tall, has blonde hair, and yells a lot. No, 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 no. Like I, you know, I'm not. I don't like it when when guys are like, "Oh, I was, I'm an idiot, and I'm a moron." Like that's such Mike Greenberg shit. But like in in high school, I was like, I was genuinely not the most uh, enjoyable person to be around. So I, I got why I got a little bit of unlike. Most I never got a cool name like T Bone or or the D Man or yeah. anything like that. That's why everybody <laughs> called me uh, Sex King. <laughs> and I never understood why that was, but it was like, I thought it was cool. It sounded good. <laughs> we have a guest. You ready for oh, good, a guest, good. Ron? Because I didn't have any more on the Sex King bit. That was all. I just came up with it. Yeah, yeah. Well, the conversation just went right to a dead end two minutes into the podcast. My God, so save we us. Have... Jason, yeah, so we please. Have... <laughs> yes, Jason Schreier is our guest, the author of Press Reset, uh, which is out in bookstores on Tuesday. Jason Trier, how you doing, man? Hello. This is, okay, I have to say, I've been doing podcasts for like six years now. I've been on tons of podcasts, recorded my own podcast. I have never once seen someone use a handheld mic to record a podcast until now, until Drew McGarry, who's going around holding it like he's a bar mitzvah DJ, yeah. um, <laughs> recording this podcast. I love it. I love I was, it. That's it's, right. It's that's the funniest right. thing. <laughs> Y'all ready to dance? Y'all ready to get down? <laughs> I used to have, I had a stand and I, for the microphone, and I used to put it there, and then one of the engineers, I don't think it was Brandon, said to me, Drew, you, like, you're gesticulating so wildly throughout the podcast. <laughs> that he not, really is. That the, that the microphone's not near your mouth enough. So I was like, all right, well, I'll hold it. And now I get to feel like Bob Barker hosting The Price is Right. So I, I actually enjoy holding the mic. And I've actually, I'd like... I hold it one specific way. I hold it at an angle to my left. And if I, if I change to the right hand, I still keep it at the left. So I have like an odd microphone ticked. And that's my amazing tale, Jason. <laughs> I love funny. it. I feel like you're preparing for your TV career, post-blogging TV career. It kind of goddamn it, right. The energy level of it kind of helps with me because it's like you know, obviously, energy level on the podcast kind of a struggle when you're doing it over Zoom. But Drew like stalking around up there like Dennis Leary in 1992 <laughs> really does help get me uh, get me fired up in a way that it's it might fantastic. not if he were. My original suggestion was that when he had the mic stand was that he cover it with Steven Tyler style scarves, and everybody said no, don't do it, can't do it. <laughs> and I'm wearing like like spoon rings, but yeah. not on like my thumb, and like just like. Just like like beads from of unknown origin, <laughs> like clipping some Jack Sparrow hair extensions in as you yeah. get ready to go off. Yeah, like I have feathers woven into my hair, and I have mascara, but only on one eye. <laughs> I could make all of that work. I, I've got I've got the look for it. Press all reset. Good ideas, but ruin and recovering the video game industry, Jason. This is your second expose of the video game industry. Uh, can you tell me uh, what has changed? since the first book you wrote about this industry and Press Reset. Yeah, so um, in 2017, I wrote a book called Blood, Sweat, and Pixels. Um, it was even reviewed by PatrickRedford.Kinja.com, which I was very <gasps> proud of. Um, oh, prestigious. Yeah, and um, it was about how games are made. It was like dove into some of the the the, the 
pros and cons, the difficulties, the hardships and obstacles that people face, why games are so hard to make, that sort of thing. And then afterwards, I set off to write a new book. And Drew, as I'm sure you've experienced before, I like had some false leads, like didn't know what I was going to do with my second book. I was like, oh, man, like this first one did really well. Now pressure's on for the next one. So like go through that sophomore slump. But yeah, eventually I landed on this idea that, okay, I'm going to go look at like a bunch of game studio closures and put them all together in a book and tell the story of like some of the darker sides of the video game industry. Actually, you guys would appreciate that this, the story started and I briefly flirted with the idea of doing, it all started with the story of Kurt Schilling's studio of former Red Sox great Kurt Schilling building 38 studios, which is, is covered in the book. And at first I, I was talking to my editor um, about potentially doing an entire book just on that, but we decided against it. Like it was, it was kind of old, and like we didn't think it would resonate with enough people if it was just that's one story. So we decided, okay, well we're now, take well a now bunch I of object to that. I, yeah. I want a whole book of Kurt. Schilling yeah, it could, it could, on. yes, it could have worked. It could have worked in, in some no way. way but like, you would have gotten to write a whole book about Kurt Schilling without having to go visit him at his like New Hampshire DACA and like, which I almost like, did. You want to see my uh, army helmet collection? Yeah, well, uh, his Nazi, yeah, his good Nazi guys and bad guys actually. I just love history. Uh, yeah, did yeah. you talk to Kurt? Did you talk to Kurt Schilling for this book, or did you have to write? So around? here's what happened. I emailed Kurt Schilling. I was like, "Hey, you want to do this?" He was like, "Let's talk." Um, got on the phone with him, explained it to him. He was like, "Okay, yeah, sure, come over, let's do it." And then over the next like three months, I kept asking him like when we could do it, and he would just not respond. And then sometimes he would get back to me like four weeks later and be like, "Oh yeah, let's do it." And then I would be like, okay, great. Can I come over this Tuesday or whatever? And he would just not respond. And eventually I was just like, all right, clearly this is not going to happen. And so he essentially ghosted me. I got ghosted by Kurt Schilling during the process of writing this book, which is too bad because I would have loved to to get his take on some things. But um, yeah, I mean, we all know what's happened to him. And actually, I mean, one of my theses in the book... I don't, I don't, uh, I can't prove this, obviously, but I, I kind of feel like the events of 38 Studios broke his brain and turned him into what he is today. Because when he was playing, he was like combative with media and like he was clearly right wing. He would stump for McCain and, and stuff like that. But, um, but like people who worked with him are like, Kurt Schilling was like a super nice boss and like he would never say things about like trans, transgender employees or anything like that. Um, and just, the 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 post twenty fourteen Kurt Schilling or twenty thirteen Kurt Schilling is just feels like a different person. It feels like his brain broke, and I think thirty eight Studios had a lot to do with that. Yeah. I was trying to to sort of figure this out for a story I wrote some months ago. I wound up using Steve Carlton more as like the anchor of it, but about that like pitchers, it, it's like a noted thing in baseball that like every generation some guy drifts into like deep kookery. People who, for the most part, like, I mean, Eric Shaw was the same way, Steve Carlton, that were, like, renowned as these, like, cerebral sort of, like, you know, ab- above average sort of introverted intellectual types who, like, at some point just, like, show up at spring training with a bunch of fucking John Birch Society pamphlets and are totally different. And huh. with Schilling, you're totally right that it was, like, after September 11th, he wrote this, like, open letter to America that's mm-hmm. very, like rah-rah, like, we're gonna, you know, not exactly, like, we'll put a boot in your ass, it's the American way, it was more of the, like, respectable Republican version of that, and, like, he was also, yeah. he was, he was a good, he was a good analyst for Fox Sports for, like, a cup of coffee, yeah. too, or? Yeah, he I mean, used to be, yeah, he used to be more of, like, a John McCain, and since then, he's, be, he's gone full Breitbart, like, he can't go full Breitbart. Yeah, um, there's no coming uh, back. Yeah, Well, and s- like, Roth, like, Carlton, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but, no. um, Roth, Carlton was, like, genuinely mentally ill, right? Like, a lot of his stuff came from what seemed to be 
like a genuine dysfunction within him, correct? It's hard to say. I mean, like, he functioned perfectly well within a baseball clubhouse. It just seemed like he was one of those guys that, like, in the same way that, like, Marjorie Taylor Greene or whatever, it's like is capable of believing conspiracy theories that contradict each other because like the broader worldview of conspiracism like enfolds it all perfectly. So it's like a bunch of things can be wrong on their face, but like as long as they're all sort of like wrong in the same general direction or they're all making the same assumptions, you can do it. So like the answer to your question is probably yeah, that is like <laughs> that's mental illness, but it's also uh like just the way that he seemed to be in the world. Jason, one question about the shilling stuff. I don't want to make yeah. you talk about this the whole time, but no, please. Uh, my buddy uh, Trevor Too Strunk, late. who had, who had yeah, it's, well, it's been a great show. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> uh, so uh, Trevor Strunk had pitched me a story about the I, Kingdoms of Amalur. Is that mm-hmm. the name of it? Mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. or something like that. And apparently, like the game itself was kind of good, right? Like it was like more or less fine. It was just a boondoggle. So so. so um... Yeah, so the book, so so just to back up for one second. So what happened was after Amalur, I decided not to do a whole book on that. I decided to do the compilation. And so one of the fascinating things that I found is that I kind of knew this before, but essentially 38 Studios didn't actually make Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning, even though most people in the gaming world associate Kurt Schilling Studio with that game. It turns out 38 Studios actually bought a different studio in Maryland called Big Huge Games that made Kingdoms of Amalur Reckoning for them. And so 38 Studio was essentially like the supervisor the publisher not even the publisher they worked with EA but 38 Studios supervised and like would would send them suggestions Kurt Schilling would would send an e- a late night email being like hey I just saw just saw the new God of War and it looks sweet can can we do this or he was obsessed with <laughs> one one of my favorite details is he was obsessed with uh with centaurs um like half half man half horse creatures and he really wanted like what centaurs. is it with fucking baseball players and centaurs it's I so know. funny it's just, right it it's real, so like, funny it's just such a thing and so, and, uh... Aaron yeah. Schilling doing the predator meme. <laughs> yeah, so he was he really wanted centaurs to be a playable race in their game that they were working on, not Reckoning, which came out, but their big like MMO, like a World of Warcraft killer they were trying to make. And um, people were like, "We can't do this. Like centaurs, if we have mounts in the game, like horses you can ride, a centaur can't ride a mount, and like a centaur won't be able to fit through doors and stuff. We can't do this." But like he was so <laughs> insistent that we gotta have centaurs, gotta have centaurs. Anyway, so big huge games. <laughs> as I discovered, has its own wild story because they went through all sorts of crazy stuff along the way. Like, they were shut down um, immediately as soon as 38 folded, but also they, like, almost got revived by another company and then that fell apart and it's a whole big saga. So, yeah, almost as fascinating as the 38 studio, maybe even as fascinating as, uh, as the 38 saga, is the big, huge games, and those are the people who actually made a game. Well, let me ask you about that because I read Blood, Sweat, and Pixels and I did not know essentially how the sausage was made. It's a great book about how the sausage is made. And, you know, the, the fact that these video game makers, you know, they, the, the, the people working for the companies, uh, you know, go through what's called crunch where they got to work 20 hour days and all this insane shit to essentially meet, uh, you know, the release date. And then the reward for that is fanboys bitching about all the glitches that they see. Oh, yeah. And they have to fix all that. <laughs> That's and, the gamer you know, way. And not really great pay. And death So threats. has the... Nice. Yes, that's right. So has the industry improved in any way since that book and since you're publishing this book? 
In some ways, I think. Um, I think that like one of the things that has happened is that more people are talking about it. There's a lot more like open discussion of crunch and the industry's woes. But I had kind of figured actually that that since then, so that book came out in 2017, I kind of figured that at some point in the past three, four years, at least one game company in North America would unionize. And that has not happened yet. And that's been kind of surprising to me, how slow the progress has been there. Because like people want it to happen. Um, it's I just saw a survey from the GDC last Last week that like more than half of game developers want to unionize like 51% and then another 25% are like maybe we don't know yet they're on the fence so a large majority of people would be open to it and it just hasn't happened and I mean I think that speaks to some of the broader anti-union forces that that you guys are very familiar with um, and uh, 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 our country just like making it difficult for you know, for for labor unions to even form and like making it very easy for companies to punish potential organizers but um but yeah i'm just surprised it hasn't happened but to answer your question i mean yes things have gotten a little better in the sense that more people are talking about it more people are refusing to tolerate that sort of thing but yeah i mean the crunch still happens like last year's um uh, all the big games of last year were like the the subject to all sorts of crazy overtime hours in fact i feel like since people have been working remotely it's even easier to not have work life balance cuz there's no like yeah. removing yourself from the office there's no commuting home um and it has its pros and cons i mean it's nice if you're going to work long hours at least you get to do it where you can like see your kids and and um make your own meals and stuff but yeah i mean crunch has not gone away sadly it's still like just as big a problem as it ever was um but for this book for press reset i actually i I feel like, like crunch is bad but like the biggest problem i think in the games industry and that's what this book is about is the volatility and the fact that like that even if you think you're you're at 38 studios and there's all this lavish spending and Kurt Schilling is paying top salaries and and buying people's homes if they when they move. Um, you, you think your company is full of money, but no, bam! Suddenly one day you come into work and you're not getting paid anymore. Even when you make like a successful game like Bioshock Infinite with Irrational Games, suddenly a year later, bam! Your studio shuts down, and that kind of like environment is just so hard to work in, and it's led so many people to to burn out. Um, it's just yeah, it's just super rough. How does that happen? Yeah, I was going to ask, like, I know how it works in digital media, but, like, none of our shit makes money the way that, like, Bioshock Infinite makes money. Yeah, that's right. Okay, that's what's crazy, right? And, like, I opened the book by talking about how this is a $180 billion industry. Um, you, the comparisons between media are very apt and very, like, true. And you look over at media and it's like, okay, it makes sense that, like, our company keeps getting shuffled around between chud owners because we like the 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 landscape sucks but in games all these companies are making so much money where does it go and then you find out that like bobby kotick the ceo of activision is making a hundred million dollars in bonuses this year and you're like oh right that's where the money goes you see that they're giving dividends to shareholders ah yes that is where that is where the money's all going um yeah fundamentally it's like a story of wealth disparity it's a story of in, in the in the book you can see a lot of stories are like corporate mismanagement disney buying a studio and then saying five years later actually we don't want to make games anymore or irrational games just like 2k the publisher behind it saying well okay ken levine the director of the studio said he doesn't want to do this anymore so we're going to shut down the whole company um kurt schilling running out of money because he ran his his shit into the ground like all sorts of there are all sorts of reasons that this might happen um but a lot of it is just like all of that money that is that is being generated from games is just getting funneled 
way up to the very top to the C-suite executives who there's a story in the book um, about a guy named Zach Mumbach who worked at EA for like 20 years. And he's a fascinating dude. I spoke, I spent a bunch of time with him and talked to him for a long time. And he was telling me about how like he would work all the time uh, when he started his career. Cause he was like, you know what? It's, it was like 2000. He started his career in games. He was like, everybody wants to be here. Lots of people want to get into the games industry because it seems really fun. And so for me to do this, I have to be like Kobe Bryant. I have to be putting every hour I can into my work and like like be the hardest worker and that's how I'll keep a career in games and so he would just like work constantly over time um, just be there nights and weekends in the office and then he had this revelation when it's like he's going in there every single night their office was next to the office of EA's like C-suite. So Andrew Wilson, their CEO and all the other executives there. And he would see them all leaving at 5 PM while he's staying at night. And then he reads in the news that they're all getting like, 10 20 million dollar bonuses and it's just like what the hell is going on why am i like slaving away to make andrew wilson rich enough to buy another yacht it's like uh, the story of everything in america these days wealth disparity but ea has not gone out of business the way you were talking about some of these other companies like the other companies you can correct me if i'm wrong here but it seems like the dynamic is everyone busts their ass on a successful game for this company and it makes a shitload of money, but it makes a shitload of money not necessarily for that company, but for the other company that happens to own it. And then when that company gets their money, they say, yeah, we don't need the studio anymore. We got what we needed. And then it fucks off and dies. And yeah, that well, happens. So with EA, what we're talking about is a studio called Visceral Games that was like in the EA campus. And that's what got shut down. Um, oh! So the, so the, ooh, yeah, see? so that got shut down. Um for a number of reasons, but one of them is just like corporate mismanagement. And this actually, so here's, here's an, a notion that's like very similar to sports. Um, Cause you look at sports teams, one of the things that drives me crazy that just makes no sense about sports. And this is true in pretty much any sport um, is that you, as if you're the GM of a team, you, because you're incentivized to think only in the short term, otherwise you'll get fired. Like you'll get fired if you have two, three bad years, cause your fans will go crazy and call for your head. Yes, you will. You're incentivized only to think about what's next. What's in the next year. What's in the next two years. Never like what's the long term health of our franchise. What's going to be best for us long term and the most successful organizations like the 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 Steelers the Spurs the Patriots etc are always thinking long term because they have that stability but you look at games and it's the same exact problem so with Visceral and EA what happened was Visceral just kept bouncing around between different genres like there was a studio that made these like third person action adventure games called Dead Space and then they got switched to be a studio that made first person shooters and then they got switched again to be a studio that made third person action adventure games again and it was like wait a minute all the people we have who knew how to make third-person action-adventure games have left because they didn't want to make first-person shooters. And it's just like this debacle of management that fundamentally led to the studio shutting down. So yeah, that's an example. And then, yeah, to your point, Drew, a lot of these cases are like game studios just being owned by corporations that, um, for whatever reasons, either have to shut down the studios or are going through terrible mismanagement and, and um, just just short-term... Like, it doesn't matter to the CEO what really happens in five years because he needs to get his his uh inve- he needs to get stocks up for the next fiscal quarter uh, otherwise he'll get fired so it's very much like the short-term approach to looking at everything it's such a fucking bleak thing the idea that like i mean just i know it's not like it, it isn't different than sports it isn't different probably than the way that like movies or television work but the idea mm-hmm. that like all of these profits and all of this success and this is like really like 
you know, during the course of my lifetime as a moderately old person, this is a business that went from being a thing that didn't exist to being, you know, whatever, like 12 figures or however many, like 180 billion is. I didn't. It's bigger than Hollywood, man. Yeah, it is. And yet, like, it's it seems like a shitty place to work that is poorly run and does not always deliver quality products. Like it just seems like the amount of space that could be made up in terms of like just tightening their shit up like 10% is incredible. And yet like, you know, you've been writing about this for a really long time. It just doesn't seem like, like how, how (laughs) did it get this bad? And also like, I mean, I guess you answered that, but like, can it get better? Like, does anyone care to make it better? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people doing really cool things in games. There's a lot of, like, there's a thriving indie scene, and there's so many cool indie right, games. Like, if you guys want recommendations, I can give you some for, like, creative, super smart games. They'll never be, like, as as glorious looking, as eyeball popping as, like, the new Spider-Man or whatever, but there are tons of really cool stuff out there. Um, and some of that stuff I actually cover in the book. The book isn't all bleak. It's, like, there are a lot of recovery stories, because what I did was I looked at people and I said, hey, what happens to you when your studio shuts down? What do you do next? And then how do you recover from that? And so there's some good recovery stories in there as well. And then at the end of the book, I present some, like, solutions to how things actually can be fixed. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that, like, like first of all, games are really tough to make. That's that's you got to sympathize because it's such a, a crazy tough art form because it blends like the technology problems of software with the creativity problems of like movie movies or art or whatever else and so it can be really really tough and like really really, really risky because you have to spend tens of millions of dollars in like three four five years on these things and so if they don't sell smash if they're not smash successes they might be seen as failures but the other thing is just like capitalism is the problem um the the first chapter in my book is about a guy named warren specter um who is this legendary game designer who was known for like deus ex which is a famous game back in the day and like system shock and and a bunch of other stuff and the reason that i chose to spotlight him first is because even like one of the person one of the people in games who's considered like the elder statesman like one of the top people in his field has been unable to find a stable career in games and has had to shit like bounce between companies and kind of like seeing like four different studios shut down and something like that like stuff like that um and the reason for that is because even though his games were successful his games were never like home run hits and he would always have these arguments with executives where they're like okay great like you made a game that's profitable but we don't want games that are profitable we want games that are exponentially growing and making if it's not good enough to like make a million dollars you have to make a hundred million dollars you have to make uh, ten million dollars this year and then fifty million dollars the next year and a hundred million dollars next year because there's just this this insatiable hunger for growth that drives like this fucked up like unregulated late stage capitalism that 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 our economy is based on and that fundamentally is the problem like when when everybody is hungry for growth you see that short term um, uh, like prioritization that I was talking about earlier and you just see like unsustainable conditions for everybody so yeah that's the end of it and then what we're seeing is some indie studios that i've been very curious by and fascinated by um are are like doing worker co-ops and other models that feel a lot more sustainable and a lot more like healthy to people and then obviously like if we saw unions in the games industry that might change some things all right well let me ask you um let me ask you the hard part what i want to ask you about what role you feel like the video game that video game journalism has played in this problem and what role they can play to help alleviate it. Because um, in December, when the Cyberpunk 2077 fiasco happened, 
Uh, our own Albert Bernico wrote something that you took umbrage with and with a lot of video, a lot of video game journalists took umbrage with. He said, reviewers who signed uh, non-disclosure agreements to review a game abandoned any claim to adversarial journalism, as well as any utility they might have had to their readers and are clowns. Now, nine days later, <laughs> Albert and Samer interviewed Heather Alexandra, who had also taken umbrage with his post, to talk about how and why video game journalism is the way it is, because a lot of those journalists are beholden to those MDAs for very, very uh, obvious and inescapable reasons. So my question to you then is, what is your what is the state of video game journalism now uh, in its relation to the state of the industry itself? Oh man, <laughs> how many hours you got? Um, yeah, not no. a lot. Heather's Heather's stuff was great. Um, I really enjoyed her interview, and yeah, I mean, I think let, let me let me take this from a different angle, which is that like I don't really think reviews matter nearly as much as other journalism. Like other journalism, like the focus on product reviews is not something that is super interesting to me. Like, um, yeah, okay, people uh, uh, gave Cyberpunk better reviews than it deserved at the beginning, and didn't reveal all the issues of the console versions because they couldn't. And and there's a you can listen to Heather for like some smart takes on why that is what interests me way more and i think what what journalism and games could be doing way better is actual reporting on the conditions work conditions at these companies and challenging these companies and doing adversarial um journalism that isn't just negative reviews because like a negative review isn't going to serve much in the long term other than like maybe warning people not to play a bad game like what i want to see is more exposés of of work conditions and and labor issues in games um and there isn't a ton of that there is some in the games industry there is not a ton for a variety of reasons most of them tied to media economy and the fact that like if you're a game site okay so a couple things if you're a game site if you're big game site um x and you have your your precarious business model that relies on you like getting early access to all the new games and first of all you don't want to piss off the publishers and potentially lose your early access because that could screw you over and lead you to fire half your staff so okay that's that's problem one there isn't a lot of while while sites like Defector have been awesome, and I'm a proud subscriber and and very Agreed. happy to support you guys. Um, yeah, it's very good. There time. has not there has not been a, a subscription business model that I uh, maybe one day someone will launch a game site with a subscription business model, but we've not seen that. In fact, even Substack, like the new hotness in media, I don't think uh, there is a single paid Substack about video games. Like there just doesn't seem maybe nobody's risked it, or tried it, or risked it. But like I don't know how much appetite there is among gamers to pay for journalism. So that's one thing, right? The other thing. Is like say okay, say you're a big site like Kotaku, which I think we we were pretty known for for being unafraid to take on big publishers, and we got blacklisted by some as a result. But say you you actually have a viable business model, and you're you're Kotaku, you figured out how to make it work. You run lean, you got your commerce stuff, you make it work, even if you're getting blacklisted by people. Um, can you really afford to let a reporter go off and spend like two weeks reporting something without writing anything else, without contributing to the blog mines? And if so, how do you? make that work how do you make it work for multiple reporters if one reporter can do it does that make everybody else jealous of them or like uh, spiteful because they have to do the grunt work the day-to-day grunt work this there's so many issues here and then like what happens if if the reporter goes off and spends three weeks on a story and then it turns out to be nothing like there's so many uh business media business models at play here that like like games media and, and then you have on top of that like publications like like media big mainstream media publications uh, 
publications. A few, like Bloomberg, fortunately for me, have invested in like games reporting to some degree, but like most of them don't give a shit about the games industry. Um, the New York Times has a theater and a dance vertical, but they don't have a games vertical. They have like a couple people who occasionally cover video games, but but that's it. And so so you don't have that like legacy media that's really really holding game companies' feet to the fire, and it's just like this perfect confluence of of things that just like lead to the games industry being able to operate for the most part in the shadows and so here's the big the big the big like the positive side spin on this is that things have changed drastically for the better over the past 20 years i mean 20 30 years ago like games journalism as we know it i mean roth like you said like the games industry just started in the past in the 80s really in the past 40 years the original games journalism was like nintendo power yeah nintendo power a magazine put out by the company that made the games exactly that they were writing about <laughs> exactly or like you'd get the hot the the new computer magazine EGM or whatever and it's like not really clear like what is sponsored by companies and what isn't it's all very much like this is what's coming next here's what's yeah. to be excited about which is fine as as a kid certainly but like now that the industry is professionalized we have seen that get a lot better and we've seen a lot more reporters and websites being willing to do some of the hard stuff um, there's not enough of it but but that's because of all the reasons that I mentioned. Why do you? Uh, this that, is one thing I'm curious about, just briefly, because I know we got to hit our break and stuff. The like, given the size of this industry, and given how much, like, just from just from reading your work, which is really like the most that I've read about gaming, because I as I am a non gaming American, like, there's so much there. Like, this is there's so much fucked up stuff in this business. What is the resistance? Do you think it is just that like legacy media places re- regard this as like the toy department and just like don't think. Like, $180 billion is $180 billion. Like, that's a big industry. So, like, how can it still be the sort of thing that, like, the Times is like, that's not really that important to us, like, not relative to our ballet coverage? Good question. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer. I've right. had some conversations with folks over there, and, and yeah, I, I don't know. Um, I'm fortunate that Bloomberg was like, hey, this big industry, like, we should get someone who, like, is breaking news and, like, doing reporting on this industry. And, and they brought me over after I started looking for a way out of Geo Media on October 29th of 2019. <laughs> oh, um, don't, know, don't know what happened around Twitter. <laughs> it was when um, they canceled our Halloween party, everybody. I mean, yeah, well, it's <laughs> I mean, it does seem to me. It does seem to me to get back to you know uh, the controversy when Roger Ebert said the video games weren't art, and I think that <laughs> I think that mentality is still very pervasive. Particularly, I mean, if you go to a fart sniffing joint like the Times, I got to think they still regard it as not a serious industry, no matter how big it is. And I have to think yeah. that plays into it a little bit, right? Yeah. Well, and I think that like like occasionally we'll see. Like, I got a push notification about Cyberpunk from the Times when they did a very, a, their big story on that, so that was cool to see. I think I think the more time goes on, the more we'll see some of these stories start to penetrate the mainstream. But like, I don't know. There are a lot of problems. For one of the big problems is that the video game industry is kind of impenetrable if you don't know all the lingo and jargon in the world of games, because there's so much to to learn, and it's like it's it's this industry that is just full of terminology and ideas and and names and companies and games that that even to the outside observer i mean there are ways to write in like a way that that can be appealing to non-gamers and their stories that i think i mean i think press reset will be interesting even to people who don't play video games but um but but it can be tough to crack that and i think 
places like the Times have tried to crack that over time and maybe had resistance in one way or another. And then the other thing is that like some of the people who run these places are just a generation where they didn't grow up playing games and so they never got into games and maybe their kids play it, but like they don't really care that much about the industry. They see it yeah. and they still see it as just for kids. I think that's it. Like they didn't grow up with it, so it's not indelible to them in the way yeah. it's indelible to me. We gotta take a break and come back and then we gotta talk to Jason about the Jets. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And we're back, we're back from the break. We gotta play some fun and games with Jason. Uh Jason, you ready to play some dead or canceled? Sure. <laughs> Everyone pauses for a second before yeah. they say yes. Like they don't they actually want to say yes. When the then. question arrives, it's sort of like, "You want to kill a guy with us? Me and Roth, we're going to go kill a guy." Like, <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah. Hey, sure? you want to see a dead body? Yeah, it's strictly reputational murder. We don't. This do is uh, yeah. Crime. This is dead or canceled. So you have to. I'm going to give you a name of a person. You have to tell me whether or not they died or if they were canceled. If they're both, uh, you say dead. Got it? Okay. Okay. All right. Dead or canceled. Former Jets owner Leon Hess, is he dead or is he canceled? <laughs> He's dead. Jason. He's, He's dead. dead. That is correct. He's dead. And on that end, Jason is a, by the way, he is a uh, he's a Jets fan. He, and he now you have a real coach and you might have a real quarterback, which is like the worst sign. I feel like it's so bad. It, it means yeah. that they're gonna fuck him up somehow. Like I feel so bad yeah. for Zach Wilson just entering the, the Jets. Um by the way, speaking of Leon Hess, when I was growing up, my dad used to buy the Hess truck every Christmas because he was such a big Jets fan and he was like he wanted to he was like, Oh, Leon Hess, I gotta get the Hess truck every year. It's a whole <laughs> they've big given, thing. They've given us so much. Gastino, oh, yeah, Fleco. Right? <laughs> I think this is the least I can do. <laughs> Wait, exactly. can you ex- can you explain this? What is a Hess truck? Oh, oh it's like a little the thing. truck. Yeah, oh, the well, truck. Oh, the truck. Truck, truck, truck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All, yeah. Right, all right. I was yeah, worried right. that that was like a tri-state area thing for a moment. I was like, do the yeah. people in like no, New I... Hampshire not know what the Hess truck is? But all right, this is good. This makes me feel better. Speaking the of commercials, the, Jets... the Hess trucks here, and it's better yeah, than ever. Remember never. those, those yeah. commercials? Yeah. I, I'm here. Roth, are, right aren't now. you a Jets fan too, Roth? I'm a Giants fan. Like, I grew up in New Jersey. Are you a Long Island guy? No, um, my dad grew up in Queens, so okay. they used to play at Chase Stadium, and so he used to watch him there. Yeah, that's usually the split, is that, like, geographic axis. And, like, my dad grew up in Jersey City and was a Giants fan, and, like, so right. I I don't mind the Jets, and, like, one of my friends was a Jets fan growing up. But this was, like, the one real overlap that I had with everybody else was, like, a Yankees fan, and I was uh-huh. not. And, like, so this it was nice to have something to agree with them with, which was basically, like... It's a good thing we're not Jets fans. <laughs> uh, fair. Speaking of the Jets, you ready to remember some guys, Jason? We like to remember a few guys every okay, week. Okay, yeah, remember please. Two, two guys. Uh, the first one, Brad Baxter. Do you remember that guy, Jason? <laughs> I do not. It might have been before before my my real football watching time. I didn't really. I was like a casual football viewer until like the mid two thousands. Um, wow. And then, and then I was, and then, and then I discovered gambling, and I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> Brad Baxter, one of the uh, one of the Jets' all time leading rushers, played fullback. Played yep. fullback. Mm. So there's the nice. They used twist to love for... fullbacks. That's like in the video of uh, Jets fans reacting badly to their draft picks. I think the when they draft Roger Vick, who is a fullback with like the fifth overall pick of the draft. I think that's the one that gets the guy going, <laughs> no! <laughs> like right after it happens. Oh man! I remember the I remember Johnny Johnson getting drafted in that. Got like that got even Mel pissed off, and they were like, "I think that was the one actually that inspired the Mel saying when Mel said the Jets have no idea how the draft works." I think that was the that was the clip. This is like from like 1982. It's a long time. Mm-hmm. Your other Jets, you remember Leon Washington? What about that, Jason? Remember I do Virginia? remember Leon Washington. I remember enjoying, enjoying Leon Washington. I remember him being really good. 
Good. All right. Uh, who's your favorite senator, Jason? It's Senator's Week. It is Defector. Senator's Week. Oh, man. So who is, is your favorite senator? This is... Uh, the, <laughs> I, I don't have a favorite... Man, I'll fuck all the, all the yeah. senators. I'm wow. Like, I mean... So I don't watch hockey, so unfortunately I can't give I can't give a good answer for like the actual senators team. And then when it comes to the U.S. government, it's just kind of like, no, all of you probably suck. If you're if you're working in politics, you probably suck. So, well, I'm, I'm sorry, the... Jason. The answer was Charles Goodell, your favorite senator. <laughs> okay, <there> we, go. <laughs> we also there would have accepted Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee. I won't okay, explain Marcia that. Blackburn. Yeah, I, no, she I said tra- she's awful. I mean, I could have just like I could do a whole bit and be like, I'm a huge Ted Cruz fan. I just love the way he looks. Oh. Um, yeah. It doesn't doesn't repulse me at all when he smiles. Um. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I had to write. I wrote a very silly post yesterday about uh, which U.S. senators would respond worst to getting a full speed check from uh, the biggest hitter on the Ottawa Senators. And I wanted to just have like a couple of sentences about my top five. And the Cruz thing, like if you saw what my first draft was, it's like everybody got like the requisite two sentences, two gags. And with Cruz, it was like, I wrote like 300 words. Like, I was just like, just get every thought out about what would happen if Ted Cruz was like skated into at a high rate of speed. And it's like, it turns out that I've got like basically 30% of the thoughts in my head are about like what would happen if Ted Cruz got knocked down. Like, would he go, ugh? Like, would it sound like, <laughs> like, would it sound like someone throwing like fish? into like a jello mold <laughs> like i'm all kinds of just anything that's that's wet and unpleasant uh yeah it's right there you should do you should team up with ashley feinberg for like a, a special uh trashberg post about about that about like like guess the sound ted cruz would make and you yeah. do a bunch of different sounds <laughs> yeah, and you're very uh, gratifying you're, roth your comic brain wouldn't let you do it but but bernie should have been on that list i bernie know there was a bunch fucking house all the commenters were killing me for not putting diane feinstein on there and i'm like this is not oh, man like you're obviously right but i'm not gonna do it <laughs> right yeah yeah well hey how about this 90 year old woman how about she gets fucking wrecked no one's got a problem clocked, right what do you think I, that would I, be I, like i'm not gonna lie no one's i would to see that. about that <laughs> yes <laughs> hey that's fun bag time i got a special video game uh question for you i have one for you jason this is yeah. from matt and matt writes in do you realize Contra, Double Dragon, and The Legend of Zelda all debuted in the same year? Has there ever been a better year for a single art form than video games in 1986, Jason? <laughs> yes, of course. Games like they're, games have gotten so much better <laughs> since 1986. If you ever tried to play Contra, Double Dragon, or the original Zelda today, you'll be like, what the hell is this? Um, there have been so many Wait, better years. Wait, is Contra years actually games. bad? I remember it as it's being not- like... A world. It was like Lawrence of Arabia to me when I was in middle school. Like it was just like the most. I was like, oh, I was like, oh, this gun sprays. Like, <laughs> exactly. Oh, fuck yeah! I think what we're learning here is that you and I are dumb and easily impressed. No, 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 no. It's not that these games are bad. It's just you play them today and you realize how poorly they've aged because games have refined and like improved so many different things. Like the way the controllers feel today and the way it feels when you press a button and like things instantly respond on screen and like there's so many subtle tweaks that the game designers have made over the years that it's just like. Uh, it's not even like watching an old black and white film or anything because you're still watching it in the same way. Like even if you watch old films, you're still there. It's still being absorbed into your brain the same way. Whereas playing a game just because those old games just feel so much differently with the controller. It's just like, man, this, this feels clunky. Like clunky is the only real way to describe it. So yeah, games, games have gotten way better. The other thing is that I, and I, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Contra and Double Dragon were both of those games where, the continue function was not particularly, if it existed at all, it wasn't necessarily reliable. Like 
I could never win Contra or Double Dragon, so I fucking it pissed me off. You gotta be able to win the game. Yeah. Well, so what happened was uh, the arcades. The NES is very, very much heavily inspired by the arcade days because a lot of those game developers were making games for the arcade. And for the arcade, you wanted to make your game super tough and make it very easy to die, so people would keep popping in quarters. And so that kind of design mentality transferred onto the NES. And then it was only the Super Nintendo where like game designers started making their games a lot more palatable and like actually fun to play if you go back and play like i don't know did you did either of you guys like for nostalgia purposes get the the mini nes the nes classic or the super nintendo classic back when those those came out i got i got emulators in my my parents still have an there instagram for that <laughs> brand nice brandon's brandon, holding brandon's it up right now one. so one yeah. of us did well, so that's the way to go, because if you compare the two, um, if you play the NES Classic versus the SNES Classic, the SNES Classic blows it out of the water, because those games have aged way better, they all feel a lot better to play, and they're all, none of them have that super crazy difficulty spike that the, the regular Nintendo did back in the day. Yeah, I remember just, but most of what I remember about early Nintendo games was just that feeling of being humiliated. Uh, was it like Ghosts and Goblins where like before oh, yeah. you get killed, your guy literally gets his armor knocked off? And so you're like in underpants when like a yeah! ghost comes and yep. like snatches your soul. Yeah. Like I always at that point, like that was really when I think I realized that gaming was not for me where I was like, not only is this not fun, like I feel weird, like I feel embarrassed and I'm by myself. Like, how did that happen? Well, that game is hard, too. Super hard. It is. Well, that game like, is intentionally that... super hard. Roth, there are so many games you could play today that I bet would be extremely for you and are, like, smart, like, um, just sophisticated, like, fascinating games that don't require player skill and you would find really, really cool. Is there, like, a, a game where you, like, go to the green market and, like, get fresh vegetables? That sounds... <laughs> that's, that's the sort of thing. That's about the level of excitement that I can handle right now. <laughs> Have you heard of Stardew Finder Valley? emulator? Is that... Is that yeah. <laughs> you gotta play you, gotta, you should play Stardew Valley. Stardew Valley is a game where you run a farm and your job is to That's the to growing the farming game. Yeah, yeah, right. You should play that. You yeah, Jesse it. writes in uh <laughs> Jesse writes in uh Jason, he writes in uh how many people's affairs were disrupted by the pandemic? I can only speak for myself when I say my affairs were just a total wash, just a total oh, disaster. It's Couldn't embarrassing and you put so much them. work into that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah i i remember i don't remember how this came up but i was talking to my wife about this about how difficult it would be to have an affair these days because it's like there's no way to to get out of the house without your spouse knowing exactly where you're going um obviously the danger thing is a whole another thing and like if affairs are unethical during normal times the the ethics involved when you could be transferring a deadly virus back home are just like out of control like Super unethical. Yeah, but like that somebody only makes it a bigger. Only makes it a bigger turn on. Oh yeah, a bigger turn the on. thrill, yeah, right. possibly uh, <laughs> right. completely immiserating your family or someone else's, but in a way that goes beyond. <laughs> Go ahead. So we should talk to Ashley Madison and see like what the stats have been like for for them and how they feel ethically about supporting affairs during the pandemic. I always believe that Ashley Madison never helped any one person have an affair. The the entire thing was just like a bit. But the, I feel like this. I, this is a, a complete long shot thing that I'm fully prepared to admit is wrong, especially because like I'm sure that Rudy Giuliani was still having affairs like the real elite philanderers. Like I imagine that there's anything that could like knock them off their game. Yeah, it takes a certain recklessness to have an affair to begin with. And a pandemic is not going to be enough to get you be like, hmm. Maybe I should be cautious in my behavior from uh-huh. now on. I was just going to say, I think that this is part of a like, broad, broader like Trump world derangement in this, is that like these guys are accustomed to like 
eight affairs per year minimum, minimum. And that, like, as soon as all those guys got into power and had a lot of attention on them, they couldn't really do it anymore. And then they were just stuck watching TV at home, like, with their families. Or, like, in Trump's case, not with your family, but, like, still stuck watching TV. I think it did not do any, uh, any good for them. I think if you're super rich, if you're part of the really elite, you can afford to have a COVID screening set up for all of your affairs. So, like, you have them come in and do, like, an instant yep. rapid test every single time. And maybe, maybe you can make it work that way. Well, that explains Bill Gates' recent divorce. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. right, down, right down to the letter. Hey, John writes in, what is the most annoyingly messy food? I'm not talking about foods that are naturally messy, like tomatoes and eggs and what have you. I'm talking about foods that seem like they should be simple, but hate you. Way deep down in their filthy little comestible hearts. My vote is for white rice. Some of the grains inevitably miss the measuring cup and spill <laughs> on the counter. And when it's done, you always screw up the transfer from the pot to the plate and make a mess. Tell me I'm wrong or drunk. I might be both. What is the most <laughs> annoyingly messy food that doesn't shouldn't be messy, Jason? <laughs> oh, man. Well, I have a toddler, so all foods are just extremely <laughs> right. messy oh, in this yeah. house. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I don't know, maybe like fruits, um, like I was having some watermelon this morning and I feel like it has no right to be as messy as it is, just like spraying juices everywhere. Um, although I guess it's mostly water, so it's allowed. Yeah, I don't know, I'd have to give this some thought. What about you guys? What do you think? I think the idea of anything that has to be like poured from a container into a measuring cup is going to sort of screw you up. And like... it. I just say this as somebody who, like, yesterday found a lentil in my kitchen. And, like, I don't remember the last time that we made lentils. It was, But it was, like, under something. Like, I clearly at some point was putting it into a measuring cup. And then a bunch of the lentils just absolutely made a break for it, even though I, like, I've done it a thousand times. I know <laughs> how to do it. And so, like, not this. I mean, I enjoy lentils uh, like anyone else. But I don't necessarily oh, yes, like definitely. finding one, like, under a toaster, not where you want it. That's you not could where cook it belongs. That. Yeah, lentil's still good. You could cook it. I know. There's I was no, going to say, like, I, if a single lentil. Too, yeah. That's, uh, by the way, <laughs> it's a the very. Answer, the ahead. answer, by the way, is sugar. Uh, yeah, I was going to say flour oh, also. Yeah. Flour is. No, like... but flour, like, you spill some flour, you can, like, rub it in or something mm-hmm. like that. Sugar, if you make one false move, it's all over the fucking place. Mm-hmm. And not only that, like, you can feel it. Like, it's there. Like, there's, like, sand on your goddamn countertop now. So, like, there's no. It's just very, it's the glitter of food. It's very fucking annoying. It's delicious, but it's not like flour where it's like, eh, you know, I got, you know, it's like, it's like dust. You know, I can like, I can sweep it off the counter and just, it'll, it'll go in the air or like it'll dissipate onto the floor enough that it won't really be perceptible. Sugar, if a fucking grain goes on the floor, I'm going to step on it and I'm going to know it's going to suck. I feel like this is one of those ones where I should in the future just seed the lane to the people that have young children because like it's so obvious that you guys have a more nuanced answer to this where i'm like so i'm making lentils because of course we're having arctic char and you can't have arctic char without lentils and you guys are like i find cinnamon toast crunch like in my own ear canal i didn't put it there i don't know who did it's like i gotta tip my cap the best is when you have a uh if you have a one-year-old and they're sitting up in the seat and you're feeding them and you get to the point where you realize oh you know, they're not going to eat the entire spoonful of this food. I just have to, like, paste it on their lips. And, like, most of it will get onto the bib. But they'll just somehow ingest, like, a, a bit of it by accident. Like, it's fucking chloroform or something like that. <laughs> and that's the way you feed a child. Like, it's just like, I'm just going to press this against you and <laughs> see, what ha- see if any of it 
see if any of it goes in there. Some of this yogurt is going to get into a pore, and you're going to get some sort of active enzyme reaction from it that'll be good. And that's oh, that. dude, yogurt! By the time you don't feed the kid yogurt, it's behind their ear, it's up their ass, <laughs> it's everywhere. It's so my kid has the opposite problem. She's uh, like 19 months now, 20 months now, and she will eat everything and just not stop. Um, <laughs> to the point That's where the doctor awesome, once told though. us, well, well, so she's picky when it comes to foods, but like, uh, we made her, we make her eggs in the morning and she'll eat two scrambled eggs and then she'll demand more. The other day she had four eggs and I was like, man, I can't even eat four yeah, eggs. I was going to say, that's not, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> but well, I, but I, she's, I she's, she's, she's demanding it. And the doctor always says like, she'll regulate her own eating. I don't know if I believe that because the amount she, I've seen her take down has been out of control, but she's yeah. 98th percentile height and weight, which is hilarious. Because nice. my wife yeah. and I are both short. It's so Maxing funny. out the sliders on your egg child. Exactly. You gotta respect it. Yeah, exactly. That was, I remember my nephew, like, early, like, when he was, like, four, we were eating, it wasn't Mexican food, but it was, like, something that had, like, a, maybe it was, like, mushu or something, but it was, like, something where you, you wrap stuff up in a little wrapper and eat it. And he, like, looked at me, like, very meaningfully, I think was, like, maybe, not trying to intimidate me, but was, like, very serious and was, like, there is no limit to how many tacos I can eat. <laughs> <laughs> I remember I being it. like, you know what, man? If you will it, it is no dream. Like, if you think that's true, it's probably true. But like, you know, as an adult, you have to realize that there are limits to how many tacos you can eat uh, safely. That's uh, all I have to say about that. Okay, <laughs> I go to the credits. Brandon right. is our producer and engineer. Daisy Rosario is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Kirk Hamilton. You can listen to ad-free episodes of The Distraction only on Stitcher Premium. And thanks to Roth and me... And Jason Schreier, you can get a free month of Stitcher Premium right now. Just go to stitcherpremium.com and use the promo code DISTRACT. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever it is that you listen. And go subscribe to Defector.com while you're at it. And buy Jason's book, Press Reset. It's available Tuesday everywhere you can get books. And also, uh, and I'm not trying to steal sunshine here, but this is the week I'm announcing. I'm announcing it uh, by the time this podcast goes. But uh, my book, The Lights Went Out. Uh, goes on sale in October, and you'll be able to pre-order it uh, everywhere. Yeah. Books are sold, and it's the uh, you know it's the story about what happened to my brain when it exploded. Ah, so. No uh, all spoilers. All more to say about that in the coming weeks. But Jason Schreier gets the spotlight this week. His book is Press Reset. We'd love to have you on, Jason. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. I'm 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 surprised you didn't want to talk about the Jets more. I was I was going to get into the draft and how how good it was and how all of those players are just going to be ruined, but we can save all that for, for next time. Um, <laughs> also Special shout out jet supplement. Your uh, Kirk Hamilton, your theme song writer is also my co-host at the triple click podcast where he also wrote the theme. So people hey, should go check that out. If you're into games, look at that small world. Fantastic. All right. We'll see you guys all next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks. Bye.